With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 61st episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also try to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help you to improve information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And all my past shows are there, too. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in, and I'm so excited to see that now there are just under 69,000 listeners in 63 countries. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. If you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know that too. And please keep all your feedback and questions coming in. I welcome them all and I truly love getting them. A quick reminder, I'm teaching a one-day class at the Secure World Expo in Kansas City, Kansas, on May 7th, and it is titled Privacy Impact Assessments and Privacy Frameworks, Effective Tools to Identify and Mitigate Security and Privacy Risks. I'm also giving the lunch keynote titled Prevent Nightmares in the IoT, the Internet of Things, the next day on May 8th at the conference. You can see more at secureworldexpo.com or just send me a message. I also have another reminder about an active project that's lasting through the beginning of October 2019. And I'm going to mention it again to raise awareness of this very important effort. I'm part of the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, team that is currently creating the NIST Privacy Framework. And we want to get as much feedback as we can from as many different industries, the general public, countries, and perspectives as possible. Please go to nist.gov forward slash privacy hyphen framework to see more information about this and also to provide feedback on the many different documents that are located there. The next NIST uh, Privacy Framework Workshop 
is May 13th and 14th, and it's in Atlanta, Georgia at Georgia Tech. You can sign up for that workshop at the privacy-framework section of the NIST.gov site also. I have been getting a lot of requests and a lot of feedback from listeners, which I love. Thank you so much for sending them. And I'm also currently working to get some really great experts onto the show to discuss some of the often requested topics. So some of them include Internet of Things or IoT, privacy and security. Um, A lot of you have asked for artificial intelligence shows and topics and the algorithms they use and the types of bias that have been observed and experienced with AI and the privacy concerns. So I'm looking, um, lining up some speakers there. Connected cars and their associated security and privacy issues. Oh, I love that topic. I've done work um, for a transportation organization on that. It's so fascinating. So that's going to be a topic coming up in the coming weeks. More GDPR discussions. Last week, I spoke with Steve Wright, and I had a lot of great feedback on that show. Voting and election security discussions, student and children's privacy, um, all those are being requested. Also, thank you for your feedback on the applications and systems development and security shows that I've done so far. I'll be doing some more of them, as well as uh, some discussions on the California Consumer Privacy Protection Act. Uh, So that is something that I will be covering as well. Now, if any of you have deep experience and expertise in any of these or other topics, just let me know and send me an email. And if you want to be on the show, but you don't have deep experience or expertise in a security, privacy, or compliance area, well, it's unlikely I'm going to be able to fulfill your request to be on the show. I just wanted to let you know that I've had many folks contact me in the past few weeks asking to be on my show, but um, they wanted to discuss topics that had nothing to do with information security, privacy, or compliance. I had one person who wanted to be on the show to talk about his new customized stamp business. I had another person who wanted to be a guest to come on and talk about acupuncture. (laughs) So, you know, to them and all others who want to reach my listeners, but don't have a security, privacy, or compliance expertise area that would be interesting to my particular uh, set of listeners, I suggest you become a sponsor of my show. Then you can reach all my listeners, but you will do so through the sponsor break audio or video recordings during my show breaks or with your ads on the Voice America site or having me mention your business as my sponsor and so on. Now, it's been around um, six months, I think, since I did my last audience tip readers and client questions segment. And since that time, the questions have really accumulated to several dozen that I've received. Uh, So I'm dedicating today to hit upon as many of those as possible. In addition to mentioning some recent news items that I just really want to say a few things about since they have some 
significant impacts on information security or privacy or both. So the first item that I want to talk about uh, briefly is about a news item that was first reported on April 10th. So just a few days ago, my longtime listeners know that I've done several shows in a series about voting and election security and privacy, but primarily security. And up until now, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had reported that hacking efforts against voting machines and systems during the 2016 U.S. elections had occurred in 21 states. But now, on April 10th, there was a joint intelligence bulletin that came out from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. And it reported that uh, state and local authorities related to the Russian hacking activities during the 2016 uh, election was wider than originally thought. And while the bulletin really contained no new technical information, it's the first official report to actually confirm that the Russian reconnaissance and hacking efforts in advance of the 2016 U.S. elections occurred in all 50 states. With the 2020 elections just a short one and a half years away, I'm lining up some more shows about this topic. And also, I'm curious to know from any of my many listeners in Russia, what are you hearing about in your country? You know, what are your thoughts on this? And for my listeners elsewhere, are you concerned about the security of our voting systems and machines in the U.S.? You know, I'm concerned. And in other countries, are you concerned about the security of the voting systems that you use there? I read recently that a widely used election systems and software vendor called, appropriately enough, election systems and software, they admitted that they had installed remote access software PC Anywhere. PC Anywhere. A lot of you out there who um, are in the IT areas probably recognize that because that was used very widely for many years, uh, starting in the late 1990s into the early 2000s. Well, anyway, this vendor uh, said that it had um, sold for its election management systems. It sold over a period of six years between the years 2000 and 2006 systems that had PC Anywhere built into it. Now, I've asked several voting machines and systems vendors to be a guest on the show so we can discuss this topic more. Because anytime you have remote access capabilities into the voting systems, that, of course, opens up a potential pathway. So we need to know, I'd like to know, and I know many others would like to know, how how are those systems secured? Because According to what I've been finding, a lot of folks who were using those systems didn't even realize that that remote 
access capability was within them. So I'm looking for some voting systems uh, vendors to be a guest on my show so we can discuss this, but I've not yet had any agree to be on the show and discuss this very important topic. So I'm going to keep on trying. If any of you are from a voting systems um, company, get in touch with me. I'd love to talk with you about this. You know, these security vulnerabilities and and bugs and related security risks, they're not, they're not going to go away on their own. So this is a very important discussion to have. So now on to a question. So this is a question that I received from one of my Privacy Professor Monthly Tips readers. This is from Kelly in Iowa, USA, and I'm based in Des Moines, Iowa, so she's from um, my state. So Kelly writes, I finally got around to opening some Christmas gifts, gifts that came super late when they were shipped from China. They were supposed to be angel nightlights that also played music from a nearby device via Bluetooth. They arrived with only a USB cord, no block, with the instructions written only in Chinese, but they did have helpful pictures that encouraged whoever was using the nightlight to plug into the angel and then plug the other end of the cord into a laptop computer. To even turn the light on, you needed to have an app, which they wanted you to download using a QR code. Against my better judgment, curiosity got the better of me. So I scanned the QR code, got the URL, and then typed the URL into my browser. I did this all on my phone. And it took me to a website that had only Chinese language on it, and Google couldn't even translate what that uh, Chinese language said. There was no app there to download, so I stopped. But I just kept thinking the entire time, this is exactly the kind of thing that gets people into trouble. What if I had decided to take this to an office and plug it into a corporate network. It's all probably very innocent, but you never know. What are your thoughts on this? So thank you, Kelly, for that um, that question and all the, the useful background. So with all the news here in the U.S., and I imagine probably in many other places around the world, there's been a lot of news uh, about security concerns with tech coming from China, and that's understandable. There was an April 10th report from Taiwan that reported concerns by those in Taiwan and Pakistan about the Wi-Fi cards made by Chinese tech giant, actually worldwide tech giant, Huawei, about um, the concerns after tech security experts reported finding security vulnerabilities in the 4G Wi-Fi cards in over uh, 20. And and back to the Taiwanese um, report, uh, there was concerns about finding this in over 20 of the Taiwanese city buses, which offer free Wi-Fi to riders. And the company providing the Wi-Fi said that they had concerns about the tech being used in their buses in Australia 
as well. So Huawei is dealing with such concerns globally, and certainly that also then impacts all other tech devices and concerns about them that are coming from China, including for wireless angel nightlights. So Kelly, it is great to know that you are aware of the security, Wi-Fi, and privacy concerns in general. And certainly what you described as your own experiences are definite red flags. So for Wi-Fi devices from anywhere, checking out the URL was a great idea. Now, hopefully you checked the security, though, of that URL of the site first. And you would do that by taking a copy of the URL for the site and and using it to be checked at a site such as safeweb.norton.com. Plug it into there. It primarily checks the history of URLs. Or another site that you could use is zulu.zscaler.com. Now, that does... Uh, generally does real-time risk checking to see if that URL was safe before going there. And there are many other URL safety uh, checkers out there also, but these are the two I typically use. So can you use the device without enabling the Wi-Fi? If so, then, of course, that is the safest thing to do. But based on your question, it sounds like you cannot if you have to use an app to control uh, the light. So to answer this question thoroughly, it would really take a full show. So I've been checking with some folks who are experts on Wi-Fi security for these types of tech, and some of them have written about this extensively and have provided some talks and given demonstrations at conferences such as Black Hat and DEF CON. You know, I want to know more about this too. So hopefully I will be able to have someone on the show in the coming weeks to discuss the security of Wi-Fi devices, how to check if they're secure before using them, and, and also to hear their findings about the security of such devices you know, based on their countries of origin, through any of their testing they've done, and so on. So thanks for your question, Kelly. I hope to cover this in depth in an upcoming show. Now, something that's interesting is the fourth largest number of listeners for my show outside of the U.S. comes from China. So to my my listeners in China, what are your thoughts about the concerns about tech coming from your country. You know, are those concerns validated? Uh, what do you think about that? I'm, I would love to hear your perspective. Now, related to this topic of being aware of the risk of using unknown tech devices and those from China in particular, there is a, a recent event that probably many of you have heard about in the news. And uh, this was a situation where there was a social engineering exploit at the U.S. president's Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago. And it also involved some risky tech. So here's a very brief description of the situation. There was an unannounced Chinese national woman who 
presented herself as a guest at Mar-a-Lago and she social engineered her way into the resort. And she had several types of tech devices that she brought in with her. Uh, USB drives and other devices that were not specified or have not been revealed publicly. Well, a U.S. uh, Secret Service agent at the site stuck one of the USB drives she had into a Secret Service computer, which then infected the computer and those attached to it with malware. Now, it was reported this way, and of course, that would be hugely embarrassing for the Secret Service. Now, some from the Secret Service said, well, this was just part of their checking process. But regardless, everyone should know in this day and age that you don't stick just any USB device or any other types of devices into your computer. If this actually was not a special computer that they stuck the device into used to test such devices, then it sounds like they really need to do a lot more frequent and effective uh, types of training about computer security at Secret Service. Every employee there should know better than to just take a confiscated device and put it right into their computers. Now, I actually did a show that described the risks of USB drives and how crooks use them. And to hear more about this topic, you can listen to my show from May 8th of 2018. I had that uh, discussion with Scott Wright. Now, Scott has done many research projects with USB drives and uh, honey sticks, as we call them. Basically, he takes USB drives and loads code onto them and sets them out in public. And then this code, when people connect them to uh, the Internet, it will send a message back to him to let him know that they were actually uh, used within somebody else's device. But he's done a lot of research there. And he's also done research putting smartphones out in public to see how many would just pick up a found smartphone and start using it and then also use it to communicate with some of their other devices. So uh, that was a fascinating um, show, that an episode that we had. So give that show a listen to hear a little bit more about how malware is spread in this way and also the precautions to take. So I also received a question from Josh, a listener in Utah, USA. And Josh wrote, I've gone to the same doctor ever since I moved to town around 25 years ago. I recently stopped by Uh, the doctor's office on my way to the store to make an appointment for my annual appointment and a sign on the door said the clinic had closed due to the untimely death of my doctor. All my health records from the past 25 years were at the clinic. The phone number for the clinic no longer works. How can I get my health data back so I can provide it to a different doctor, which I need to do to find or replace my deceased physician. 
oh my gosh, <laughs> what a horrible situation. And Josh, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your physician. I can just imagine that that must have been quite a shock, you know, especially after so long and so many years, I can imagine that you had a professional friendship built up over the, all of that time. And then to now have to worry about your health records, you know, it's really a double whammy of shock from your trusted physician's death and then to immediately also have to worry about your personal data. So I do have some actions that I'm going to recommend for you to take, but we're coming up right now on a break. So I want to, I don't want to disrupt the flow of my answers as a, as we come up on the break here. So in the meantime, what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. Today, I am answering listener questions and providing a few news items. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. And also, you can contact me through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm answering some of my mini listener uh, questions and also questions from my Privacy Professor tips readers and throwing in a few news items. So right before the break, I talked about a question from Josh in Utah and it had to do with him finding out his uh, physician, longtime physician, had died and he could no longer get access into the clinic or find out about his health records. So, Josh, here are a couple of actions that I recommend that you take. First of all, contact your state medical board and you can find out how to get in touch with them through the Federation of State Medical Boards. So, Go to fsmb.org. FSMB supports America's state medical boards in licensing and disciplining and regulating physicians and other healthcare prove- uh, professionals. And they also help to ensure patient records, security, and privacy issues are addressed. You know, the FSMB states on their site that their end goal is to keep patients safe. So the reason I suggest you go to FSMB first is that they will be able to give you additional advice along with letting you know how to best contact the Utah State Medical Board office and ask how you can find out then once you get into the the state board office, um, medical board office, ask them how you can find out what has happened to your patient records. Tell them you can't get in touch. The phone number doesn't work. Ask them how you can get copies to provide to your new health care provider. And then another action for you to take. If you cannot obtain satisfactory advice or answers from your state health board or the entities they point you to. Um, Maybe they don't tell you the information you need. Then go and submit a complaint to the Department of Health and Human Services, or the HHS, as it's often referenced as, and tell the HHS that you are not able to obtain your health data as the HIPAA regulations, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act regulations requires, and HIPAA gives you the legal right to do. You have a right to access your health data and to obtain copies of it. The HHS actually provides a website where you can submit a complaint about all the types of HIPAA violations uh, that, you know, people are observing, that patients and insureds are are observing. And this includes your ability to, to get copies or your inability to get copies of your health data. And you can also use this to uh, validate then that your health data is secure. So uh, to do this, go to their webpage, and it's located at 
hhs.gov, sorry, hhs.gov forward slash HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, forward slash filing hyphen a hyphen complaint. Good luck with this, Josh, and please let me know how things go. So here's another um, news item, and I saw a news blurb reported on this on April 9th, and I'm really compelled to write about it, especially because they reported this basically as a funny situation, but it really does point to a serious problem within the tech industry. So there was a headline on CNN, and the headline was, a three-year-old boy repeatedly entered the wrong password, locked up his dad's iPad until 2067. And then here are just a few of the passages from the article, the report. Evan Osnos, a staff writer at The New Yorker and a fellow at Brookings Institution, put out a tweet letting the world know of the little situation his toddler put him in. And he showed the image of his iPad with a locked out message. And Osnos tweeted, this looks fake, but alas, it's our iPad today after our three-year-old tried repeatedly to unlock it. Any ideas? And the photo of his iPad screen showed that the device was disabled and the message it gave back was, Try again in 25,536,442 minutes. That's more than 48 years for those of you who don't want to do the math. So his iPad will be available to him again sometime in 2016. Now, the article also said that the iPad lockout is a security feature of Apple devices that kicks in whenever someone repeatedly types the wrong password. And the more times incorrect passwords are entered, the longer the lockout time grows. And you know what Apple suggested? Apple said, well, you need to perform a restore to use the device again, and you'll lose any data on the device if you've never backed it up. So, yeah, that was funny. But here are my concerns about this. You know, this threw up a huge red flag for me to to engineer an application or a device that cumulatively adds with no limit to the lockout length for a device after unsuccessful authentication attempts. You know, quite frankly, to me, as someone who started as a systems engineer and who who has taught how to do applications programming and systems engineering for many years, it's really quite frank, frankly lazy applications engineering. Now, there's no reason from a security perspective to just keep adding to the lockout time after unsuccessful attempts with no limit on it. You know, the application could have had just a little bit more code included to set a limit for how long the device would be kept locked. Um, And then you wouldn't even have to worry then about losing data because you'd have to restore the device. And then when Apple just advised to restore the device and then, oh, well, you might lose all your data, though. It just seems such incomplete and poor programming, planning and practice. And this is a red flag. This is a red flag because if they were either lazy or weren't thorough enough in their engineering of this feature, 
that that tells me what other aspects of the devices are also lacking in engineering and implementation of thoughtful effective controls you know these types of incidents give hackers and cyber criminals a sign that these devices probably have other weaknesses or lack of thorough applications designs possibly no thorough testing before being put into production so using those such devices those devices become targets for those who want to exploit the identified and possibly other vulnerabilities that were basically built into them. This is a growing problem with the inadequate practices for computing device design, engineering rigor, and for the applications development and testing and and how it's just becoming, quite frankly, sloppy and not thorough. You know, with the increasing complexity and diversity of tech environments that are now being used, the design and testing rigor should be greater. But for too many vendors with the goal of getting to market quickly to beat their competitors, engineering design and thorough testing is simply not complete and not adequate too many times. Uh, A couple of shows from earlier this year covered this topic of applications, testing, and change controls. One was with Dr. Mish Kabay. The other one was with uh, Dr. Dan Shoemaker. So give those a listen to hear more about the problems and how the CNN story about the locked out iPad could probably have been avoided with better engineering and testing. You know, this is another series topic, applications and systems, design, testing, and change controls that I'm also going to be hitting upon again in the future episodes because this is something, if you can't tell, I'm pretty passionate about it and it just worries me that this is going to lead to just so many more incidents and breaches than should occur just because of inadequate engineering and testing and planning. So I'll get off my soapbox there, but that just really, really hit a sore point with me. Okay, so on to another question. So here's a question from Lacey in New Zealand. And Lacey asks, is it safe for me to allow my child to use my old phone or old laptop or old tablet? Are there some steps I should take before just handing it over to my child? Okay, I love this question, Lacey. Thank you for sending this. I am so glad to hear that you are thinking about this before just handing over your old devices, especially to your child. I I know of too many people who just do that. They just say, here, start using this, um, and they don't do anything before they just hand it over. Using old devices can can certainly be okay if, if you do some things first. So here are some steps that I recommend you take, Lacey. So number one, check to see if you have any data on your device, chances are you do, right? Completely delete the data if you do have data still on there. And this includes getting rid of all your stored IDs and all your stored passwords, credit card numbers, and so on. You don't want your child to accidentally log into an online retail site and order a few thousand dollars worth of toys if you left your credit card number, ID, and password to the site stored within your device. 
Then number two, if you don't want to go through all that and if your device has a removable SIM or memory and or storage card within it, simply remove that and replace it with a brand new one. And when I say brand new, don't use one that's just been laying around. Get one that's been sealed and you open it up, you know nobody's put anything on that uh, card, that SIM card or storage card. And and then <clears throat> re- restore your device to the original state. But you're not ready to give it over yet. Then before you give the device to your child, give it a test use yourself. Verify that there is no device or data on that device or, or anything else on there that your child should not be able to access or use or anyone else should be able to. Now note, if you're going to sell your device or throw your device away or donate it to someone, then you need to do one or both of these two steps also. You should never give a device away to anyone else without first taking all the steps necessary to completely remove all your data in storage and in memory from that device. And and don't forget about your apps and your browsers. Those store data too and those apps can also connect you to other cloud services and possibly other devices and many can access your data in other places automatically. So get rid of all the apps and browsers, etc. too. If you install new memory and storage cards and do a factory reset, this should take care of most of this, but I never like to assume. So look at your phone and check it out. And also, I would say turn off the GPS tracking if a child is going to use this device as well. Then number three, depending on the uh, age of your child, you may want to load some child safety apps that you know are trustworthy onto the device. You know, the kind that would allow you to keep young children from being targets of online predators or to keep them from getting into sites that you don't want them to get into and to keep them from seeing things that you'd prefer they not see at their age. So here are a couple of good ones to consider. So one that I have liked uh, in the past and I think it's still good, too, based upon what some of my colleagues have told me, is the Kaspersky Safe Kids um, tool. It's inexpensive. Uh, in U.S. dollars, it's right around $15. It is a monitoring system, basically, for desktop and other mobile types of devices and platforms. And you can also use it from multiple devices that you can monitor from and also monitor the use of multiple devices as well. Now, if you want to make sure that your child only goes online from within your home through your home Wi-Fi router, then there are also routers that have built-in security and parental monitoring controls that you can use. So, for example, there's one called Clean Router that you can get in various online retail sites for around $30. And through it, it, it does a wide variety of monitoring. So do some searches and you can find even more choices. And then number four, you're not done yet. Speak with your child about how to use the device securely and also in ways that she she or he can protect their privacy. 
this is really important. Everyone should sit with their child and discuss the importance of practicing good security and privacy before just handing over such devices for them to use. You know, set some ground rules and then talk with them about new things that come up related to security and privacy. Do this frequently as time goes on. You know, I've had many of my privacy professor tips readers tell me that they provide those tips to their children and other family members too each month to read. So, you know, that's another another option. Uh, a news item that I wanted to briefly mention. A few days ago, I saw on my local news here in Des Moines, Iowa, in the U.S., that yet another ATM skimmer was found in a suburb in West Des Moines. Now, the ATM machine had a video of all those using um, and around the ATM machine. So they captured on film and know and saw after the fact that the crooks installed, and they installed really very very quickly and surreptitiously, I mean, even those around them didn't realize what they were doing, they installed it in the skimmer one morning, then they came back and removed it that night. And throughout the day, they stole through that one ATM machine $26,000 from 34 victims. Skimmers are are hitting victims worldwide. You know, I found out that the European Association for Secure Transactions, or EAST East, they recently reported that 14 of the European Union countries had reported increasing instances of card skimming at ATMs throughout Europe. I found several advertisements online from actual cyber crooks. I saw some from a group of self-proclaimed skimmer device criminals calling themselves a professional carding team with a large ring around the globe. And they, they claim that they had over 2 million skimmers installed worldwide. And they even showed some videos of their crimes and how they were installing these skimmers into the machines. And they showed a worldwide map with the locations marked for where they have the skimmers used. So this seems like a really lucrative way for crooks to steal money. So this is a good opportunity to once more warn all of you, stay aware of the devices that you're using, the ATM machines, and also the point-of-sale machines where you scan your own cards. Make sure that there are no skimmers installed. So a couple of things you can do. Grab the skimming device and see if it wiggles or is loose. If it is... Don't use it because that's a, it's a big sign that somebody's um, put a skimmer in there. If you have a card that's the same size as a credit card but is like an old membership card with no digital chip or magnetic strip, you can also use that to stick it in the slot and see if it fits tight. You know, I have an old bookstore card that's the exact same size of a credit card, and I carry this with me to do this. So I put that into the reader, and if ever, anything seems odd about the ATM machine or the point-of-sale machine, I don't use it. Uh, and report it to the manager on site if there is one. And the same, you know, goes for the 
uh, sale machines or POS machines, both the ones that are for self-checkout and also for those sitting right in front of the store clerk because there have been many instances where these skimmers were put into place in a split second, even in devices that is located right with the store clerk. Okay, I have another question here from an anonymous listener. The other day, my dad called to ask me what I'd been doing in a certain town. He was trying to log into his Gmail account, and it asked him which device he wanted to send an authentication code to. Because I had recently used his computer to access my own Gmail, my phone showed up as one of the options. Below the name of my device, it said its most recent location. I had actually been in that town buying a surprise gift, so it it was really unsettling that he had known where I was. How can I prevent something like this from happening again? And yes, I had fully logged out of my Gmail account before leaving his computer after I checked my email. Well, oh, those sneaky apps providers They create all those apps that go on your phones, tablets, laptops, IoT devices, anything that can have an app loaded onto them, and they put their digital-like tracking hooks into all the associated devices. Well, I shouldn't say all. Most do anyway, particularly email providers and social media sites and, of course, others. So something else to consider is that smartphones have built with built-in GPS, and most smartphones have built-in GPS now, right? Unless you're using a really old one. But most often have um, the ability to report users' locations to a wide variety of different online services. So with regard specifically to Gmail and accessing email from multiple accounts, if that's, or from multiple devices, If that GPS tracker is uh, turned on and reporting is turned on, it will basically happen that everyone using the devices that are accessing the email will be given information about the locations from where the person was when he or she checked their Gmail account. So keep in mind that your location may be able to be determined from the other apps that you have on your device as well. And also keep in mind that apps, including Gmail, are often still sending data to their cloud service about your phone or laptop, even when you are not actually using Gmail or the other apps, and even when you're logged out of them. So try this the next time you use your dad's laptop. Um, When you get on his laptop, before you get into your Gmail account, go into the device, into settings, go to the app permissions option, then to the location option, and turn your location services off. And something else you can do is reducing the accuracy mode for your location to low. I know even if you turn your location services off, you can do this too, because sometimes um, other apps are going to be talking about or sending information about where you're located. Uh, So if you do this, keep in mind that might remove functionality from other apps on that device. So after you check your your email, 
you probably want to turn that back on for your dad so he doesn't lose uh, capabilities for his other apps. Now, this may mitigate the possibility of having a situation similar to this again, but to resolve the issues relating to tracking and having such alerts sent out, it, it typically is a pretty complex issue to resolve because depending upon the device and and all the other apps that you have on that device and so on. So, you know, that's something that you need to keep in mind uh, too. And the more I, as I'm talking about this, I'm thinking this sounds like a show that we should do about removing trackability through computing devices. I think that'd be a really great topic. Um, So I'll plan on that. In the meantime, give my previous suggestions a try. And definitely let me know how it turns out. Okay, we're getting down to close to the end of of, um, the show. Gosh, I have several other things I want to talk about. I do want to let you know really quick, I won't give you as much information about this as I was planning to, but um, right now, a lot of checkout point-of-sale systems are using what's called Embedded POS Ready 2009. It's a variant of Windows XP, which has not been supported since 2014. Well, Embedded POS Ready 2009 is now no longer going to be um, supported either. So think about it. If you have a business that has point-of-sale checkouts using that, That device is going to, or that checkout system is going to um, become vulnerable because it won't be supported anymore. There's so much more I have to say, but, you know, we're getting to the end of our hour already. Um, I'll put all of my other topics uh, on a list for when I do another one of these shows. Please send me uh, feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more of these types of shows where I talk about a variety of topics based upon listener questions? Uh, Did you find the information we provided helpful? Just let me know. Send me your feedback and your suggestions to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on all those apps I talked about at the beginning of the show. And also, of course, through the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. Um, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Now, until next, our next show, Ask those that you do business with and ask those that you work for, are they doing all that they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.